This program is sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I'm your host, Chris Macy, and I am the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. It is, um, well, it's Tuesday, uh, the, oh man, 18th, I couldn't get the date in my mind, I kept thinking it was Sunday, the 18th, and uh, it's getting close, I hope you have all your Christmas presents purchased and everything ready, I hope family is coming in town or that you have family here, and that you get to spend some good quality time with one another, and that uh, you get to grow closer to your family uh, here as well as your spiritual family, and that you're thinking about the things of God and the things of Christ, and that, Lord willing, you'll also think about the thing of the Bible and read that and come closer to the Lord, not just for this time of year, but make a dedication to get into the Word every day, starting now and to the rest of your life. Today, we're going to be taking a look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This is really an encouragement and an uh, exhortation. And uh, let, let me start by reading 12 to 17. 1 John chapter 2, starting verse 12. John says, or writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not let or do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. All right. We need to ask some questions about this difficult text there. Who is John referring to as children, fathers, and young men? It seems apparent that John is not referring to the actual age groups, you know, the physical age groups, the way we typically understand it in our English language. But I think he uses these terms metaphorically to refer to the various stages of spiritual development you would find in a congregation. The primarily, uh, you, primarily you have uh, to do, well, I think it has to do with levels of Christian experience. Why does he not refer to these groups in ascending or descending order? Mm, it's kind of curious uh, that John goes from children to fathers and then to young men, and not in some sequential order. If I had to guess, it's that he did this to let us know that he's not t 
talking about physical age groups, perhaps, or that he is doing this for emphasis. Uh, it does cause you to linger here, though, right? A little longer. As you notice, the groupings are out of order. You give some wonder, and it's almost it's like he's forcing you to think about this particular text a little bit. And then why does he basically repeat the, uh, what he says about each grouping? He addresses each group twice, and although he does not use exactly the same wording in his second address, except with the fathers, he does use similar language. Generally, when people repeat things, they are wanting it to stand out in your mind. They are emphasizing it to drive home a point. Why does he use two different verbal tenses? I am writing to you and I have written to you. Again, it's an attention grabber. John might be doing it for emphasis. It may be simply a matter of style. Scholars call this epistatorial arist. Uh, this means that the writer is writing from the perspective of the reader and not his own perspective. When they read what John is writing, it will be what John has written. So it could be an ancient style of writing to emphasize or repeat something without sounding uh, monotonous, you know, I guess you could say. Or it could be that he has written to them in the gospel to do this, but now he is writing again, really, the same thing or, or something very similar to that. So there's, there's some questions there, and hopefully as we work through this text, some of those questions will be answered or it'll give you something to think about, at least, as you study this text on your own. Now let's start with verses 12 to 14. This is where we get the majority of our questions. And I title this part, The Encouragement. Everybody needs a word of encouragement. John singles out groups by spiritual experience. It seems that John is commending the various groups in order to encourage them to remain faithful to the apostolic teaching they received. He is combating the influence of the false teachers who tried to change the beliefs of John's readers and who had caused doubt within them concerning their relationship with God. So I would like for us to look at each group John lists here for us. There are three, children, fathers, and young men. So let's start with the children. Now he mentions them. Uh, in two places, verse 12 and then the end of verse 13. We'll call that 13c. Here in verse 12, he opens it with the phrase, I am writing to you, little children. In 13c, he changes it to, I have written to you, children. I mentioned in the introduction that this could just be a style of writing, but there's that other possibility I also mentioned. I am writing to you would clearly be pointing to the current letter, 1 John. I have written to you could be pointing the readers over to his gospel he'd already written to them. Now that's just a possibility that, to consider. I would also like to point out something you can't see in our English text. The word children, used both in verse 12 and 13, even though it's translated as children, our Greek manuscripts uses a different Greek word uh, for each one. The first wording is the Greek term, uh, let's see if I can pronounce this right, technion. Uh, this particular word seems to point to an idea of children in subordination. That's the first word. You only find this word used by John in his gospel and in here in 1 John. 
It is used just once in the gospel in John 13, 13. Jesus is speaking with his disciples and he calls them little children. It is a term of endearment and true, but also shows that they are not yet men in their spiritual understanding. They still need training before they can be sent out on their own as spiritual men. Jesus says this right before he gets into what we call the comfort chapters, or uh, the high priestly prayer also, John 14, 15, and 16. This is how Jesus will mature them. Back over in 1 John 2, 13, in our text, we have the second use of children, pation. Pation, I admit, perhaps. This term promotes the idea of kinship. We find this term used a little more than the previous one, three times in the gospel and twice here. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 49, where we have the healing of the man's son. 1 John 2, 18, that were our text, when John says children, he is talking about their kinship together. All the children, and not merely the spiritually immature, uh, they are family, and he is their teacher. And I've noticed with my son Joshua uh, that when I want to talk to him about something he needs to learn, I'll say, son, look at me. Josh has learned that these are moments of instruction. I can see that he stops what he's doing, you know, and he focuses on me. I bring up this point because I think it's important to see this in the text. I think it'll help you see what's really going on here. So with that in mind, let's examine the children from verses 12 and 13. So I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you uh, for his name's sake. Here John is writing to those who have just begun their Christian pilgrimage. He wants to remind them that their sins are forgiven. This is the perfect tense, forgiven in the past and still forgiven today. In essence, what John is trying to get across with these uh, spiritual children is that if your sins are forgiven, then why would you need to heed the new teaching of the false teachers? The answer is obvious. And he adds in, for his namesake, referring to the Christ, and all that his name represents. You see, guilt is a problem of spiritual newborns. Some think that their past is too difficult to overcome in order to be pleasing to God. Others, uh, wanting to do everything right soon, realize that they continue to make mistakes. Uh, my boys get so angry when they can't do things like I, uh, I can do them, but they're children. They don't have the full knowledge and experience yet. Jody is, is really in this state. She gets so angry because she just can't do what the boys are doing. So Jenny and I encourage them. We remind them where they are at and uh, that, that they are doing well. Just don't get discouraged. John is reassuring his children that they are in a right relationship with God the Father. And so let's look at a, also verse 13. So that's what he's written. Now I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. Again, I think John's talking about his gospel that he has already written, and he sent them uh, uh, sent to them at this point. I think John is reminding these children that they have a relationship with the Father. 
He is doubling down on this thought for them. He does not want these little ones to be swayed by the false teachers. Now, um, let's, uh, let's go on to the next group. And, of course, the next group is the fathers. And John uses the same phrase in verse 13 and 14 when writing to the fathers. As with the children, I think he's talking about spiritual maturity of the Christians. If true, then John would be speaking metaphorically of both men and women. These are the Christians who have grown in their relationship with good, uh, uh, I'm sorry, with God through a knowledge of Jesus. They have matured in their faith and are now in a position to help others who have not reached their level of maturity. John uses the term here now, uh, uh, know, K-N-O-W here, which means they have known and still know him, that would be God. This is in contrast to the teaching of the change agents. These mature Christians have a strong relationship with God through Christ, and not through some higher intellectualism supposedly brought on by these false teachers. These mature Christians know God who has been from the beginning. Beginning here likely refers to the beginning of time, just like John wrote in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. This is given, in contrast again, to the false teachers who claim that Jesus was not there in the beginning. John repeats this phrase. These Christians know the mind and heart of God. They must share this with the other Christians so as to encourage them in these difficult times. And then the last group mentioned in verses 13 and 14 are the young men. This group will be somewhere between the children, beginners, and the fathers, spiritual mature, spiritually mature. To these, John says first, you have overcome the evil one, referring to Satan. We don't know the specific victories that John may mean here, but sin certainly comes to mind. Perhaps they are withstanding temptations. The next time John mentions overcoming in this letter is with the false teachers in 4.4. So it is, it is possible that these young men were on the spiritual front line in defending the faith. In any physical war, we would typically use the fathers, the older men, as generals and the young, strong men to fight on the front lines. This same line in verse 13 is restated by John at the end of verse 14. But before that, he had some more to say to these young men. There in verse 14, he also says, You are strong, and the word of God abides in you. Note the relationship of physical strength in young men with that expression, you are strong. This denotes spiritual strength. The mention of the word of God abides in you may also point us to their growing knowledge and their victories over the false teachers. Now, I want you to notice something here. Although I, I know it's quite obvious, the family, the family relationship here, most, but not all, of my uh, commentaries or helpers, the things that I use when I study, believe this to be a passage dealing with 
physical families. My favorite scholar, R.C.H. Linsky, makes that assertion, but I disagree. I, I think this is talking about the spiritual family. Just as Paul spoke to the church on how they were to help each other attain spiritual maturity in Titus chapter 2, so too John shows that point here. Fathers help their children and teach their young men. We can actually see that happening in this passage between the fathers and the young men. The young men have the word of God abiding in them. This is not just their physical fathers and mothers, but the church helping one another to achieve that which God intends for us. Now, I hope, I know that's a, a lot of technical terms there and, and things that, that I'm throwing out there while you're probably driving your car, but I just want you to think about the text. Uh, I think that's what John wants us to do. He he's wrote it wrote this in a certain way so that we're, we're, we linger here a little bit, we consider his words. It's out of order uh, as far as, you know, if you were going to put it in kind of a order by age based on the terminology. But I think he's talking about spiritual maturity. I think he wants us to linger here a little bit. And it's meant to not only encourage us, but for us to encourage one another. So let's, let's think about that. Now in verses 15 and 17, John moves from encouragement to exhortation. And the exhortation is simple, and it's pretty specific. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. The word world here is referring to all that is corrupt and in opposition to God. It is, a, it is human society controlled by evil. And the things in the world are the specific allurements this realm offers that draw us into the world. It is not the possession of things of this realm that John opposes, but the love of worldly things. It is the love of those things that, where your desire becomes so strong for these things that that desire pulls you away from the influence of Christ and into the influence of Satan. Remember, Satan, Jesus said that he, no one can take us when he, and up from his hand. In other words, Satan cannot come in and grab us and pull us out of there. He can't even come within the realm of Christ. So anybody who is in Christ, we are safe from Satan. But what he can do, standing on the outside, he can get our attention. And then using the things of our desire, make us want to walk out of that influence over to him. And so he, he uses things. Hey, so you like pretty women, huh? Look at this on your computer. Look at this on the magazine. Look at that scantily clad woman on the billboard or on that TV commercial because we know what's out there. And he uses all these things to try to allure us back into the world to draw on our desires. But we got to fight that. That's worldly. And if, he, if we allow that to happen, he's going he's gonna to win. He's going to take control of us, sitting on our throne, the throne of our heart, and not Christ. And when that happens... Brothers, sisters, we're in trouble. So don't do that. Don't love the world or the things of the world. You can have things, true, but don't love things of this world. If anyone loves the world, 
This is the word agape here for the love. Anyone who puts the world above the needs of your neighbor, who is truly in need, or above your love for the Father, the love of the Father is not in him. In the same way that Jesus said we cannot serve two masters in Matthew 6, 24, John is saying that we cannot love both God and the world at the same time. If agape love means to put the needs of another above your own, that would mean you would serve that person. So if you are serving the world, you cannot possibly serve God. Agape requires full devotion, and this passage is speaking of our love for the Father. There are two reasons for this exhortation. Number one, loving the world is inconsistent with loving God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's verse 15 that we just looked at. Also, look at verse 16. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father. Since the world is all that opposes God, it involves the lust of the flesh, right? And what that is, is that, uh, which is that which is sinful desire and cravings that we have while living in the flesh. The lust of the eyes is craving for what is seen, every gratification for which sight is the instrument. And then the boastful pride of life. This is literally vain glory of life, centering in on self. It is what we do to impress people with our earthly circumstance, the showy exhibition of earthly things, but certainly a false view of the value of our possessions. I love having a truck or a car. Some people really love having a truck or car. And they love to point it out. They love to show it off. And it's okay to have pride in things, but don't let that pride in your uh, things or the things that you own become your love, that you put it over other people or God even. But when you do that, vain, that's vain glory. Be careful with that. The source of all these things is not from the Father, but from the world. Sorry to keep going to the Greek on you, but I like this part in the literal sense. It is out of. That is, these things, all that is in the world, the lust of flesh, the lusty eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not out of the mind and heart of God, His Spirit, you could say, but it is out of the mind and heart of the Spirit of the world. You see, who is sitting on the throne of your heart? God or the world. Uh, I used to do a Tuesday night study and we would look at the kingdom or we were looking at the kingdom of God and this would be the reigning of God in the hearts of men. But if you are living in the kingdom of the world, it would be the reigning of the world in the hearts of men. Loving the world is the exact opposite of loving God. It is inconsistent. Number two, now, that's, that, that's, remember, we're looking at two reasons for this exhortation. Number one, 
loving the world is inconsistent with loving God. And number two, loving the world is inconsistent with our eternal quest. Verse 17, the world, all that is in opposition to God, is passing away. Now, the passing away here is the in the present tense grammatically. That, that means the world is currently in the process of passing away and is continuing in that process. Not just the world, but also its lusts, which is all the things associated with the earth. These things are in the process of passing away and will eventually come to an end. John has already said in chapter 2, verse 8, that with the Christ event, the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Also here in 2.18, John writes, It is the last hour. Everything is progressing toward uh, culmination. In contrast to the ultimate end of all that is evil, John says here at the end of verse 17, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. We can now know that we have eternal life by doing God's will. All that is seen and lusted after is only temporal. As we bring this lesson here in 1 John to a close, I want you to turn over to 1 John chapter 5. Or, I guess you can't relate. Let me read for you 1 John 5, 11, 12, and 13. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. But you that's only if you've already been brought into the body of Christ. You got to hear the word. Believe that word spoken to you, the good news. You have to repent, uh, uh, you have to uh, confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You have to repent of your sins. And I know many disagree with me on this, but you need to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. And when I, get, I need to put some more lessons out here for that. Uh, but feel free to call me or email me. You can find that on our website, www.nbcoc.net. Running out of time here, folks. But I love you. God loves you. Read and study your Bible. See if these things are so. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. This program was sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ.